In today's episode, you get to meet an amazing woman that I was fortunate enough to get to meet at a conference that we both attended more than two years ago. I sat down at a round table in a sea of women that I didn't know, and she came over and sat down in the chair next to me. And from the moment she sat down and spread out all kinds of beautiful sacred objects in front of her to create a personal space for herself at the table, I knew she was really something special. And we had the opportunity to talk together throughout the conference and to also do a photo shoot where we each had branding photographs taken together. And it was such an adventure. We were up until probably 1.30 in the morning doing that. And it was a great time. And the friendship that was forged then has continued as she has continued to build her business and I have continued to build mine. When she shared with me her story of suffering a catastrophic back injury and healing the injury without surgery, I knew that she was somebody I wanted to bring on the show because it is such an amazing story, not just of healing in a completely different way, but also of incredible personal power and courage. And of course, that is one of the things that I want to highlight with my Born to be a Badass podcast. So it has taken a little while to interview her and get her episode up, but here it is. And I hope that you enjoy our conversation as much as I did and that you fall in love with her as much as I did when we first met. Here we go. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the show that tackles the subject of women and violence head on and shines the light on what women need to know and do to be safe. Here's your host, fourth degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Jolicoeur Rood. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jolicoeur, and today I have the tremendous honor and pleasure of bringing on the show a woman that I met two years ago at a conference, and we had never heard of each other or seen each other, didn't know each other at all, and we just ended up sitting side by side at this conference and had an instant connection which was really cool. And we've sort of stayed in touch ever since then. And I thought she would be a wonderful person to bring on the show. I'm sure you're going to enjoy hearing her story and you'll learn a whole lot. I know I am learning a ton every time I talk with her. Her name is Elaine Williams. She is a sought after mind and body coach who created the vibe method after healing a major back injury without surgery. After 15 years of chronic back pain, mental and emotional health crisis, treatment with both Eastern and Western healing modalities, Elaine was told by eight doctors that she needed emergency back surgery, and a psychiatrist told her that she needed antidepressants. That's when she decided to take her body and her brain into her own hands, and that's how the VIBE method was born. Elaine was born in Caracas, Venezuela, and has lived all over the place, like more places than I have. She's lived in Saudi Arabia, Washington State, Wisconsin, Missouri, and Kansas, 
before she settled in California. And she lives in California now with her partner, Angel, and their African gray parrot, Mitra. She holds a master's degree in sports management, is a holistic exercise and nutrition coach, a neurotransformational life coach, and she serves as a licensed religious science practitioner. Welcome to the podcast, Elaine Williams. Thank you, Cynthia, and hello to your audience. It's an honor to be here. Well, thank you. I'm so glad we were able to get this scheduled because I have been looking forward to getting you on here for months. Mm, And congratulations on the launch of this podcast and the heart that you've put into it and the dedication and your, your voice. I know what you stand for is tremendously valued and important and necessary. So thank you for your work as well. Oh, thank you. Well, before we dive into sort of the nitty gritty, really juicy parts of the interview, I'd like to ask you a couple of sort of easy questions, some getting to know you questions and uh, just sort of slide into it gently because what we're going to talk about is pretty deep. So are you ready? Oh, I love I love going deep, but let's start with the the surface stuff. Sure. (laughs) Okay. What did you dream of doing when you were a child? What sort of life did you envision for yourself? You know, when I was a child, for some reason, I always thought I was going to be in medical health. I dreamed of helping people heal, but I thought it was going to be a doctor. I thought I was going to be working in hospitals. And I also had dreams of being an Olympic athlete. I loved the movement. I loved the way that I felt in my body when I was a kid, playing, running around, uh, participating in different athletic activities. So I thought I was going to be an Olympic athlete or a doctor. (laughs) Or both. Or both. Hadn't thought about that as a kid, but yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I know sometimes we think of things as either or, but, you know, just hearing that and knowing where you are now, it's really kind of cool because you actually have kind of combined both of those things. I mean, not exactly, but you've combined both of those threads as an adult. Mm -hmm. Yep. The journey has, um, has definitely led me to the core essence of those dreams. For sure. Yeah, that's so cool. Okay, I have one more question. What is one thing that you absolutely positively have to do or see or experience before you die? I have to forgive everyone and everything. Absolutely. And then in the external world, I have to go to Venezuela and see Angel Falls. There's something there that's calling me. And I haven't gone because, as you know, Venezuela is going through some challenging times right now. And my safety in going there is probably not the, um, the highest. So I've, I've avoided it. And I hope before I die that I get a chance to actually be there and, and honor that calling that I've had for most of my life, actually. What is Angel Falls with? What kind of a place is that? I mean, obviously it's a waterfall, but what makes it so special? I believe it's the largest waterfall on the, on the planet. And it is 
magical. There's something magical there for me that I can feel. Something about that feels um, almost as if it would be the external representation of what kind of power I feel that I have access to. I believe there's energy there that is transformational just in the vortex of that, of that area. I mean, I can see it. There's been pictures or images I've seen online of it and it's so expansive and the water is so powerful and it's so beautiful that it reminds me of what a miracle looks like on the outside and what a miracle feels like on the inside. So just, yeah, I, I've experienced my own um, miracles in my life in different ways, but I want to see that. I really want to be there because I feel like it would be almost as if I could be inside of my own movie. Wow, that's really cool. I have to tell you, I just like got this full body shiver while you were describing that. That gave me to I like I still got it. Just uh, that, was, that was a powerful description, and uh, golly, I think I need to go there too. Yes, maybe I'll take a group of people there one day. We pray that that um, that land is protected, and we pray that Venezuela comes to a peaceful place of harmony where people can can live there. Um, in peace and in harmony, because right now it's a little tumultuous. Yes, it is. Okay, are you ready to dive into the meaty part? Let's go. I'm ready. Okay. I'm really curious, what actually happened to your back and caused the injury? That's a great question. And I will start by saying that what happened to my back at 19 years of age is um, perhaps just the, the beginning of what happened to it 10 years later at 29. So I had been participating in multiple sports growing up. And I think that the way I was going from one sport to another that were not complementary and required different levels of training from my body was probably leading to some wear and tear on my joints that nobody at that time looked at or was aware of, or maybe helped me prevent wear and tear on my body. For example, I played basketball, but then I would, the next season I would swim and the kind of training my body was going through to play basketball on the court, lifting weights, lifting resistance was very different than my body getting in the pool and swimming where the resistance on the body is very different. So at 19, when I chose a sport, which was basketball to play in college, the impact of basketball training, I believe, was just so much that it led to an injury I didn't even know was coming. So I think it was repetitive stressors that were invisible, that were symptoms I probably ignored and nobody could see because they were internal. And so at a point of, um, yeah, just shock, like I was in the shower shaving my legs and I bent down to shave my legs 
and fell to the floor. And this was at the same time that I was considered probably the most athletic person on the team. And I was competing at division two level basketball training hours a day. And I didn't think something like that could happen. Perhaps, you know, maybe spraining an ankle or, um, you know, getting an elbow to the nose or something seemed appropriate given the kind of training I was doing. But to have a crippling back injury and fall to the floor while I was shaving my legs was a shock. So what had happened was there was no warning signs. Nobody was seeing what was happening inside of my body. And I just fell to the floor and I couldn't stand up. And I crawled back to my dorm feeling completely like desperate for answers. Like what happened? Is this really happening? You know, so a combination of shock and, and questions. And then just to fast forward. So, I mean, I, at that time at 19, people just, you know, did the whole typical get some shots, numb out cortisone shots, wear back braces, do ice baths and spray the body with these chemicals to numb out so you can keep playing. And I did that for four years to keep playing basketball. And then after college, I went on this journey of exploration to find out what happened and how I can heal and prevent this because the pain was still there. And the diagnosis, let me just backtrack for a second. The diagnosis was herniated and bulging discs that were um, impinging on my, my nerve. So that's what happened at 19. It was causing symptoms for me that were reducing my ability to, to jump, reducing my ability to perform hard the way I used to. So it definitely crushed my dream of being an Olympic athlete. And not only that, it really crushed my spirit that found joy in movement. I was able to channel energy and discharge energy uh, through my participation in sports. So I was also having an identity crisis of who am I if I can't move uh, the way I need to? Who am I if I can't be participating in sports where I have my belonging? And so I decided to channel that energy into an exploratory process, a journey of seeking answers. And that was a 10-year journey that leads me to being 29 years old at an office job as the health and fitness manager for senior services. And at that point in my exploration of what happened to my back and how can I heal this injury, I had gone through the physical treatments, even some of the mental treatments and spiritual treatments. At the time, I was also becoming a licensed spiritual practitioner and it was still painful. I still was tolerating a lot of pain. And that's when the eight doctors told me I needed emergency back surgery. And um, I had been on that journey for 10 years to try to heal. And uh, it seemed like it wasn't working. And I didn't know what was left to do. So when the doctors said you need the surgery, and I made a promise to myself when I was 19, this is probably one of the keys to my success is when I was 19 and I hurt my back, 
my coach at the time actually said to me, Oh, Elaine, you know, this happens and athletes just get surgery at the end of their four years. So like, just tough it out, play through it. And that's just what happens as you have surgery. And at 19, I was probably naive enough and bold enough as just a kid to go, that's not me. Like, I'm not going to do that. If you're telling me that that's my path, no, almost like a rebellious kind of thing. But I promised myself that that wasn't going to be me. And so at 29, 10 years later, I was faced with that decision, not from a coach, but from eight doctors. And I remember that promise to myself. And I, when I tried to get second and third opinions to agree with what I wanted, and it didn't happen, I remember crying and praying and being like, how do I get out of this one? It almost seems like there's no way because I've tried everything and the doctors want me to have surgery. So I remember that the way I surrendered into the answer within me, the way I surrendered was actually by accepting the surgery. Now this is going to be kind of a paradox, but I remember being so against it and trying to find the answer and not finding it that I said, well, what have I not done that could potentially help me figure this out? And I really realized that what if I just mentally accept it and stop resisting? Because as they say, what you resist persists. And so I said, okay, let's do it. Because I just wanted to kind of experiment with what would happen energetically in my body if I, if I accepted it. And I remember the moment I accepted it, something in my body physically like released is like a weight I was carrying on my shoulders just like dropped. And I went into the, um, the director of my program at work and I said, I need to go on disability because I'm going to have the surgery. And the day that my disability started and I found myself waking up the next day after knowing I'm on disability, we're going to do this. I don't have to go back to work. My pain was gone 50%. I could start walking again. I was happier. My mood had been uplifted. And I started noticing these internal shifts. And I thought, something, there's something here. I don't know what it is, you know, because I'm not a doctor or an expert, but I knew the sensations of relief in my body from not having certain stressors in my life whether it was a stressor of fighting against the surgery, the stressor of trying to figure out what the solution is. I mean, that's like anybody who has chronic pain knows it's like a full-time job to take care of yourself and manage yourself. And so that was a lot of energy going towards that, that I kind of let go. And all of that inside of my body was like gone. And I had so much more space. I felt lighter. And I knew that something magical was going on I didn't know what it was, but I knew I was healing already before even going to see the neurosurgeon. So when I walked into the neurosurgeon's office, I actually walked in with a smile and I walked in as if you know, I wasn't limping. I wasn't hunched over. I didn't have crutches, nothing. I walked into his office with a smile and he looks at me and Cynthia, I'll never forget. He said, 
Why are you smiling? Have you seen your back? (laughs) I was like, yeah. And inside of my head, I was thinking to myself, have you seen me? Like, look at me. I'm right here. I know you're a doctor and your job is to look at the MRIs and the images because you're doing surgery. But I also wanted his presence to look at me, like the quality of my energy. And I was showing up and I was not in significant pain. And I was like smiling. And he actually goes, okay, if you were my daughter, I would not do surgery. And that's when I said, well, then call me your daughter. And I was serious because that's the answer I was always looking for is that is what I needed. I needed that agreement that I do not need surgery. And I knew it inside of me. And the only way that I could get there was actually to surrender into accepting surgery because by doing that, it gave me the space in my life to actually feel what it's like to let go of stressors. So I think it was the actual, the space that not going back to work gave me the space, not having to manage employees, not having to go and try to figure out how I'm going to heal my back and all the energy that I put in there. I think it was in that space that was created that my body just started healing itself and giving me these signs of like, Elaine, keep doing this. What you're doing, this is working. And that's why I was so happy. And that's why he gave me a chance to continue doing that. And he said, okay, here's my cell phone number. If anything happens, we'll do emergency surgery. Just be very, very careful and and good luck. And I never went back into his office. I never called him. And it's been um, 10 years since then. And I've been pain-free and I've been, more than anything, I've been grateful for the gift that that lesson taught me about surrender and about allowing space to be the greatest lover and the greatest healer that I, I could have in my life. Holy cow. I got so many questions. <laughs> I'm just like, oh my gosh. You know, my mother lived with me for more than a decade before her death in 2017. And her last decade was absolutely dominated by chronic pain due to bulging discs, degenerative disc issues, pressing Mm -hmm. on nerves. And, you know, actually towards the end, one of her surgeons said, well, if it hadn't progressed so far, we could have probably done a surgery that would have helped to keep your spine stable, but it's way too late now. And I just remember thinking, well, why didn't anybody offer that as an option, you know, a decade ago? And I just, I I know how serious that pain is. And I'm just sitting here just amazed that you lived for such a long time with all of that pain and still were like doing life, you know, it's not like life stopped because you were dealing with all the pain. And I'm just, I'm hearing your description of that moment where, you know, what you had been pushing away, which was the surgery, that moment where you just said, okay, well, I'm going to stop pushing that away. And then everything shifted. 
is just remarkable. Just absolutely remarkable. What kind of surgery was it they were recommending that you have? I can't tell you like the clinical name of it, but I know that I had what is called cauda equina syndrome and uh, the left side of my leg from my hip down to my foot was numb and I had drop foot. And so they were going to do surgery that was going to take away the liquid from the disc or the disc itself that was putting pressure on the nerve, like literally squeezing that nerve, like strangling it. And so because that nerve was being strangled, I had no feeling. I was numb down my leg. I couldn't actually feel my leg. Could I walk? Um, that to me is also kind of a miracle is how, how tough I was. And in some ways, ignorant, tough, like a, a stupid tough. I thought at some point, <laughs> Cynthia, when the pain became numb, I thought it was actually going in the positive direction. <laughs> Because I was like, at least I can't feel the pain now. I was really a mess back then because I was so driven to accomplish what I thought were measurements of success, you know, with work and lifestyle. But what was going on in my body was that my spine had been strangled to the degree where it wasn't allowing uh, any feeling down my leg. And they wanted to remove parts of the discs that were compressing the nerve there. And the, um, I don't remember what the name of the surgery was, but I do remember what they were going to do. So did they, did they say anything about like what the long-term effect would be mm -hmm. of having that kind of surgery on your spine? Yes. I remember asking the doctor, so if I don't have surgery, you know, what's the chance of me healing on my own or if I do how long will it take me to heal and I remember them saying I'll never forget they said if you have surgery or you don't have surgery most people are at the same place eight years from now or eight years from the surgery or from choosing not to have the surgery and I thought to myself wow I know it's like a long ways away at that time you know eight years seem like far away. But I remember having this commitment to the long game. Because I know that surgery, they promised relief right away. They promised like that they would take the pressure off my nerve and I would have my foot working again. And I wouldn't have drop foot and I could get back to activities like playing sports, etc. And while that sounds great, and it might be the right decision for some people, I was more interested in the long game. I didn't want a knife in my back. I didn't want surgery if I could achieve the same healing, even if it takes me longer to get there. And so that's when I made the decision of like, I will just invest in, in not having surgery because the temporary satisfaction of being able to get back into athletics right away Two things were going on in my head. A, I knew that I hadn't figured out why I injured myself and how to prevent it. So if I get that green you know, light to go back into activity because of the surgery, but I still don't have control over my body and awareness enough to perform those activities safely, then I'm a risk to myself. 
So I knew that I needed to invest in the long game and figure out as I'm healing, I'm also learning how to, in a safe way, walk again. How do I even stand up straight again or in a healthy way posturally for my body? There were so many lessons that I learned on that eight-year journey that I absolutely think are part of me sustaining my healing for the amount of time that I have and knock on wood for the rest of my life that I don't think I would have learned those lessons had I had the surgery, gotten right back to the environment that, frankly, was part of the cause of my injury and, um, and not learn the lessons. Right. I mean, I'm thinking, well, jeepers, like eight years, that's not really long term. Like I was thinking more like, I mean, my mom had all of this stuff start to happen when she was in her like 80s. You know, and I'm thinking, okay, you were 19 when this first started, 29 when this this next phase happened. Did anybody think about, well, what's this going to look like when Elaine gets to be 79? Because the body, we know, degenerates a little bit anyway, just through wear and tear of normal aging. You know, did anybody think about that? That to me is like long term and eight years is not long term. And then to just think that whether you do or whether you don't, you end up in about the same place. What? Like, why, why would you do something as invasive as a knife in the body, cutting away parts of the body in order to take care of a symptom? If you haven't got any clue how to prevent further degeneration, further damage, and you can't do something to the spine to protect it from something else happening. So I can just imagine there's so many little elements of the question to sort through and to juggle. I'm curious, you know, you had tried a whole bunch of different kinds of treatments. Maybe you can speak to a few of those that you tried during those years prior to this decision point. And then I guess two questions. What did you start doing differently to heal yourself? And have you ever gone back and done an x-ray or a scan or something to see like what the state of your spine is now? So I'll answer the last question first. I don't know what my spine looks like now. Um, I don't know if I really care to see what it looks like though, because there's so much um, research now and, experience that doctors have with the way a spine looks, perhaps there could be herniations, there could be some bulging discs there, but some people are asymptomatic. And other people may have smaller disc protrusions, or less bulging of discs, but they have symptoms of pain. And what I've learned having so many images done on my back in the first part of my journey with chronic pain is that everyone was trying to diagnose what my treatment should be based on the image. And nobody was assessing my mental and emotional state or my stressors in my life and the habits that were causing stress on me mentally and emotionally. They were just dealing with the physical body. And I found that to be a huge flaw. I mean, if someone would have addressed the stressors in my life from the beginning, I probably could have eliminated 
a lot of years of pain, a lot of time, money, and resources going into trying to just fix the physical through the physical. So some of the modalities that I did, um, because we were focusing on the physical body and the images from when I was 19 were cortisone shots. Those were supposed to cause um, anti-inflammatory effects in the body. Of course, you know, drugs like um, anti-inflammatory, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, and sometimes even higher forms of of painkillers. And then I would also do physical therapy. Uh, Sometimes that actually caused more pain. Went to chiropractors. I went to Pilates. I did um, somatic work, Hannah somatic education. That actually started to really maybe move things in the right direction. Can you describe Um, what that is? That is where I was taught how to really use my mind to connect with parts of my body. It helped me become more aware that I could control certain parts of my body by putting my attention on it. It was less about performance per se, like Pilates or physical therapy and chiropractic. Those modalities for me, it was as if I went in and someone was going to do something to me and the treatment was going to happen to me. And if I participated, I was going to perform. So I had to perform for someone or for, you know, the exercise. But hanasomatics actually taught me a different kind of communication, even almost gave me a different identity. Like I couldn't be an athlete because those exercises are slow and they're very mindful. And so I had to throw away my mentality of athlete and ego and performance. And I had to really tune into more of a meditative style movement. Um, it helped me stand up in a way that I didn't know was actually straight and posturally correct. And it started to shift the game from things happening to me in treatment to I am a co-participant with what's happening in the treatment. Like I have to actually be focused and mindful and slow down and engage with how I'm being rather than doing and performing and letting things happen to me. So that really shifted the game for me and helped me realize that there was more power I had actually, that I actually had more power I could draw from. And I noticed my body respond in positive ways. And that was really cool. It was really um, amazing to have that kind of response with my body that felt like we were, we were doing something together. And then I did acupuncture which again, uh, helped me really feel things that I didn't know I could feel. Like someone would put a needle, needle in my ear and I would feel it in my toe. Or someone would put a needle in my wrist and I'd feel it in my intestine somewhere. I was like, this is cool. So it started to help me realize different connections of communication that my body could provide to me or that I could listen to and engage with. And... Um, 
what else did I do? Reiki, um, sound healing. So then I started getting into things that were, oh, and I changed my nutrition, try to do anti-inflammatory nutritional protocol instead of taking anti-inflammatory medicines. So just a lot of learning and these modalities um, grew in their wisdom for me as I kept gaining new understandings of how my body communicates by these different modalities. For example, the chiropractic stuff, it was hard for me to have communication with my body when someone else was manipulating my body and I'm just laying there and kind of managing my fear of like, uh, what if something goes wrong here? Relax. And then they do the work and then I, I walk out. It di- just didn't make me feel like I was in a, a place where I could communicate with my body. So I started choosing modalities where I would be able to have a connection with my body where I was a co-participant engaging. And then I could hear communication that my body was responding from the modality. I'm sure there's so many others because I did so many things. This episode is brought to you by Damsel in Defense. Damsel in Defense creates products that allow you to enhance your safety through items that you either carry on your person or in one of your bags or purses, or the things that you can keep in your home or in your car. Damsel is also involved in fighting human trafficking by creating damsel houses. Currently, there are two, one in Cambodia and one in India, where girls are rescued from sex trafficking. They are given housing and shelter and help to form a plan to build new lives so they no longer have to sell their bodies. The goal for Damsel is to have a home in every country that their partner organization, which is called Destiny Rescue, is rescuing in. I became a Damsel rep not because I really wanted to sell self-defense products, but because so many of my clients wanted to buy them. And I wanted to A give them a good vehicle to buy products that I knew were good quality products that are workable and B because I wanted to be able to provide them with the training that they need to actually learn how to use these products and have a realistic understanding of when they can and cannot be helpful. So I became a damsel in defense pro and if you're interested in checking out their products which cover a wide variety of things everything from stun guns and pepper sprays to coupons and other striking tools and tactical pens with flashlights and a whole lot more, you can access products from Damsel through my website by going to cynthiajolacourt.com slash resources. That's where I've highlighted a few of the products that I really appreciate and that I think are a great value. So check those out if you're interested. And if you want to look through the whole Damsel catalog, you can click through from my website to my Damsel Pro site where you can find all their other products, including books and other materials that you can use to work with your children to begin their journey of knowing how to keep themselves safe. Remember, you don't have to be a damsel in distress. You can protect yourself and you can get some help in doing that through Damsel in Defense. Well, it sounds Um, to me like what you're describing is a process of going from viewing your body as an adversary that's broken and needs to get fixed to having 
a positive relationship with the body that you inhabit and sort of co-creating the experience of healing. I'm curious, like, it sounds like all of these, these adventures in different modalities actually were the beginning of the process of you figuring out how you could heal yourself. But how did you figure out what to do? And how did you, what was the process like in actually going through that healing journey to get to the point where you actually were like, yes, I, I am healthy. I am healed. I am functional. Mm -hmm. It's a great question. And I really didn't reflect on that question until eight years after I made the decision to not have surgery. So I remember when I made that decision and I knew that what I was going to go through was just a determination to, to explore and to, to do whatever I needed to do to stay away from surgery and to continue to heal. That was my only intention. I mean, if someone told me, stand on my head and say the alphabet backwards, I would have done it if it was to heal and, and not have surgery. So what it was like for me was just to be committed and married to that intention. And it led to all these different modalities and being in Eastern and Western and all kinds of things that I was open to. And when I look back, so I, after eight years, I go, I did it because I remember the doctor saying at eight years, you're going to be the same place as someone that had surgery. So at eight years, I look back and I was like, I've done it and I don't need surgery. I have been pain free for eight years. And what did I learn? So that's when I actually started reflecting. And when I reflected on that question, I was like, what did I do? And that's how the vibe method actually came to me because I remember the first thing that I did was I got, I surrendered to, I surrendered to opening myself to information that I didn't think I knew or that I had. And what I call that now is surrendering to higher wisdom. It's just some people could call that their higher power, whatever. I, I just really want to focus on the word just surrender because when I was holding on to the idea of I'm not having surgery and I'm going to figure out my how to fix my back, like you said. And I let that just go. And I surrendered. What was able to come through to me, what my intuition was able to then allow me to receive was the response my body was having to the stressors being out of my life. I was able to actually go, wow, my body says this is actually supportive or generative of healing, which is leaving that job, being on disability, reducing your stressors, changing your nutrition. And so the first thing I did was just surrender what I know into, well, what do I not know? And let me just be open to not knowing. And so the openness to not knowing allows us access to infinite amounts of information. And that is, I think, the first step. And to put that into a tangible 
practice. What that is could be meditation. That could be a meditative practice of some sort where you just allow yourself to clear your mind of what you think, what you think you know, into a more open, spacious place of receptivity. And then what I had to do was I had to really look inward. Because like you said, looking at those images or focusing my attention externally on uh, what happens to me uh, just wasn't generating healing. So in the inward eye or looking inward to how are the sensations of my body responding to my behaviors or what's the communication of my body? What is this, you know, what does lightness really feel like when my body expresses release or relief and getting intimate with the inner workings of my sensations, instincts even, and not focusing too much attention on what I'm thinking per se, but what I'm feeling and how I'm sensing myself. And then from that place of information, now I have to work, now I'm working with the sensations, now I'm working with the feelings, and I'm also working with new information from my intuition Then from there, I made behavior modifications, which meant dietary changes or releasing things in my life like jobs or places I lived or environments that were toxic, relationships that were toxic, etc. Released beliefs that I had. I released, um, you know, certain things that I knew were not going to generate those kinds of sensations that I knew were generative for healing. And then I just got really consistent with behaviors that were generative to my healing. It's like um, when you find a song that you really love and you play it over and over and over and over. I did that with the way healing felt in my body. I was like, okay, so that's a response that is generative to healing or feels like we're moving in the right direction. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. So for eight years, I, I remember being just disciplined to continue doing that. And that's what I call in the vibe method where we build the muscle of self-mastery towards people's intentions. And I realized that's how, when I reflect back on what happened, it was a lot of repetition of those kinds of behaviors in, in showing up in different ways. Like one year I gave up alcohol because it made me feel better. Other year I gave up coffee. It made me feel better, even though I didn't want to. But that's the difference, the ego versus the inner truth. And another year, you know, gave up a job with uh, what I thought was financial security, but I knew in my body it wasn't the right thing for its healing. And so those kinds of choices that are affirmative or affirming healing or what I had to do. And like you said, it's um, like adult, it's real adulting. It's really being a hundred percent responsible for my choices that are healing affirming versus harming or generative versus degenerative. And it sounds simple, but that's just what I did. And I did it over and over and over because it was working. And because my intention was so strong I'm going to heal and I don't want surgery. And so I would do whatever I needed to do, even if it was leave a six-figure job, which I did. 
And that's, that's how serious I was committed. I was, and I didn't really know that it was ultimately like going to work. It wasn't about, is this going to work? It was just like, I hope this works. And I had that hope and I had the desire. It was like driven by pure desire and intention. There wasn't evidence. It's not like I was following a research study that says do this and this will happen. So that's where I, in some ways, feel lucky and feel grateful for the relationship that my body um, allowed me to, to explore with it. I guess in some ways you can um, mirror that to anyone who's in a generative relationship where you're committed to each other and you're committed to your growth. You're committed to love. And that commitment starts to just blossom into various beautiful things along the way. And you may not know what it's blossoming into, but you know that you're committed to the love, to the growth, to the connection. And it's kind of like that. You know, I I was going to ask you, like, literally, my very next question was, what did you learn about yourself through the process? And what did you learn about the mind and body connection? And you just answered that completely, which is amazing. And one of the things that really struck me is when you were talking about the difference between basically letting your ego run the process and just admitting, like, I don't know everything. I don't know what I don't know. I just know that there's probably something else and I'm going to, I'm just going to like be open to discovering through my intuition, through paying more attention to what's going on with me, other things that I can do, other things that I can try. I'm going to trust that I'll start to see connections. And I think I automatically make that connection between how you discovered this and what I do in teaching people how to be safe, which is very much, it's not out there. It's not about your ego and what you think you know and what you think is right. It's about trusting your intuition. It's about having faith that solutions will appear, that you already have inside of you the ability to discover what you need and to do what you need. You just kind of have to get your ego out of the way and be patient and really trust that this is something that is in you already. So I just, I love that. I love that um, connection between what you do and what I do. And I'm curious if you can just share a little bit more about the mind and body connection and like what you learned through your process and then how, how that comes into play in your work with people. Yeah. Well, one of the things I just wanted to touch on is um, that I, I learned, I really learned what it means to be a lover, what the embodiment of love looks like from myself with my body. And um, I know that's one of the things that we share archetypally is the embodiment of the lover. And the true intimacy to, to trust or to, to have that sense of safety and vulnerability 
if it's not coming from authentic embodied love, then there's going to be some fear there. And that fear is what's going to trip us up and cause us to be confused around, well, what, what am I actually safe or am I actually not safe? Like what's coming from ego versus what's coming from my perceptions of my environment or instincts that I really need to trust. Right. Mm-hmm. And And so what I think I really learned about the mind-body connection is that when we're not connected with our heart space, if we disconnect or disembody from our heart, then we lose the ability to recognize when love and fear are actually distinct. I believe that the ego has so many memories of what could happen that threaten us because it's there to protect us or it wants to protect us. But the way that our brain works is it's what is called a negative bias. It's going to have us perpetuate thoughts that something is wrong or that we are threatened by whatever because that's the way that it can help us survive. Our bodies were for so many years under certain threats that we still carry that programming in our brain to operate about like most of the time under a negative bias which is also the unconscious part of our experience. It's the automatic brain preventing us from getting hurt, trying to protect us. So if we're always thinking in our unconscious brain and we're not slowing down to become aware, conscious of like, is this really a threat or is this just a memory of a threat that now I'm perceiving and projecting in my life. And I know that that's what I operated in my brain for like many, many years with my back because I didn't know how my back was hurt and nobody protected me from that pain and nobody knew what exactly happened. There was this fear in my head that I would do it again because I didn't know how to protect myself. And the mind-body connection without the heart is left to a very, I think, um, unfair statistic. Meaning, if we're operating 90 to 95% of our time in our unconscious mind, and most of that is a negative bias, then our body's going to feel that. Our body's going to feel that fear. Our body's going to feel that we're under threat all the time. And it's going to act it out. It is going to be the form or the expression of that thought of fear. So without our heart, without us stopping and asking our heart what it needs, what our desires are, I think we're left with a very uh, challenging 
opportunity, working against all that negative bias. So what I mean by the heart space is the purpose or the intention that we set for our, our life or our body or whatever challenge we're going through. I think that that intention, that purpose has to come from our heart space, our desire, our passion. And that place that's what would love do? What does love look like in this scenario? And when we start going into that heart space and asking, what is a lover? How does a lover relate to this or engage with this? Then we get information that's going to perhaps question a lot of the negative bias or really um, not give it so much energy because we're being pulled by something greater, a, a higher vibration. Love is always going to be a higher vibration than that fear. And so then our body gets to experience not so much of the negative bias or the unconscious parts of us that are signaling fear, but it gets to experience that form of love as it feels that it will express that. And then we get to use our conscious part of our mind to recognize what we just created. It's actually a creative process by tapping into our heart space. The mind doesn't operate as much in its negative bias. The body receives a higher vibration and then it expresses itself and responds more positively. And if we become conscious of that, then we continue to make more choices that are affirming of this love kind of creative energy that we are engaged with. I'm sitting here just nodding and nodding and nodding and going, yes, 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 yes. And thinking that, you know, in a way this seems like such a blindingly obvious missing piece. And yet, obviously, it's not blindingly obvious, because look at the state of the world. But I love this framework of it's your mind, and it's your body, and it's your heart. And you can either operate from love, or you're going to, by default, be operating out of fear and out of a very defensive, protective, negative mode. Uh, it makes so much sense. And I thank you for explaining it that way. That's it, very helpful. And like I said, I'm just sitting here going, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> That's been a really mm-hmm. brilliant description of what you discovered and why, why it's really worked. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the people that you work with. Uh, I'm curious what some of the top issues are for people who come to you for help and what some of the most common misconceptions or false beliefs about health and fitness are that you encounter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, most of the people that I attract, so I definitely embody the lover archetype in my business as well. So the lovers are attracting, or I am attracting people that unconsciously are not loving themselves in a way that generates healing and harmony with their body. And so what they are doing is they are behaving 
whether it's in fitness or in their nutrition or in their lifestyle with stress, they have behaviors that are degenerative of the love that their body is begging them for. And those could look like um, being in an unhealthy work environment or relationship environment or an unhealthy relationship with food or with exercise, actually. These people, most of them are getting injured. They've already tried to heal with physical therapy or with some of the physical treatments, but they haven't found the key to staying injury-free and self-managing themselves better. So they keep hitting walls or plateaus or injuries and pain. Or these are people that get on and off the fitness fads and diets. They try to lose weight. They do it temporarily and they gain weight back and more. And then they get back on a diet plan, lose the weight again. It just is this yo-yo cycle. And so there's a mental or psychological pain of like, is this possible for me? Am I worthy of what I actually want? Because they keep trying things and not getting what they ultimately want. And for other people, it's I'm not good enough uh, because they keep trying to heal and they, they don't ultimately get the healing they want. So then they start having these limiting beliefs of I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough. And so what I really work with with people is they're dealing with pain and struggle with their body. And the first thing that we do is we stop what they've been doing because we know that's not working. And that's the ultimate test, almost like my filtration system. Some people are so attached to in their ego to um, you know what they think they know that if I tell them to stop running or um, that they can't continue doing those things that were not working for them and, and they don't want to, that's when I actually just decide, like, are, are we going to be a good fit? Because it's going to take them so much longer. And I, I'm not afraid of commitment, but I know that there's a faster way to heal. And it does come with that surrender your ego thing. But some people are so attached to doing things the way they think they should be doing it, which has not been working for them, that it takes them longer. So sometimes I just have to let them make their own mistakes. And as long as I stay with them to watch them make the mistakes and learn from it, then I know that there's hope If they're learning from their mistakes. And so my ideal clients, they are learning from their mistakes. We're on this journey for the, the long haul. We're committed because I'm only a guide and help them explore back into themselves you know, their intuitive power, their lover, their choices that are more affirming of what they really, really want. And then making sure they're accountable to what it is they say and supporting them and celebrating them along the way. Because sometimes those changes are significant. It affects not only them, but it affects people in their lives and um, impacts major shifts. So Uh, The people that I work with are really, I would say, um, scuba divers versus snorkelers, as we say (laughs) in, you know, one of the coaching programs I'm in. If you're willing to scuba dive and not stay at surface level, 
And it is a great fit because deep down is where we'll see the most beautiful gifts of your life and of yourself. I get to witness people open their gifts. It's like Christmas for me almost every day. Oh, I love that. So what are some of the essential must-know concepts or strategies or tools that you believe people need to have in order to be healthy and at ease with their bodies? Essential concepts or tools to be at ease with your body. Well, first you have to want it. You have to have a desire for it. There has to be a part of you that desires ease. And think about that, Cynthia. We are in a world that doesn't praise ease, right? Right. I think we mistake fast and fix, fix it for ease. But ease is something very special and different. Ease is, ease is without worry. It feels like freedom. It's fun. It's like effortless, right? And we're trained in our societies that if something is effortless, must not be doing anything. And if you're not doing anything, are you being productive? And if you're not being productive, then what worth do you have? Right? So you see where this goes. So first, people have to have an understanding of the concept that they desire. And what does it really mean? There's a, there has to, it has to be meaningful in a way that is love. Like, how does ease express love in a way that you would do anything to experience that? And from there, I think that's when the tools come. Because, you know, there's all kinds of tools out there. And, you know, we could use a hammer to build a house or we can use a hammer to break down a house. So the tool can be used. The same tool can be used for different things. It's what's the thing? What's your intention for using that tool? And that is what I think people must get clear about. And that's the very first two steps of the vibe method is we envision your highest expression of love. What does your highest expression of love look, feel, sound? Imagine that we want people to come from a meaningful place that's a higher vibration than what they've been currently operating at in their ego. And then from there, we use the tools. And I'm not going to give you any tools that you're probably not going to already know. The tools are going to be the same. I mean, you know, eating healthy food, organic food is, um, it is what it is. But if the intention for eating is to slow down, to connect with your food, to be appreciative of your abundance, to nourish your body 
and to engage in a process that is really meaningful to providing ease in your life, then that's going to be very different than coming from eating a salad because you need to restrict your calories because you think you're fat, because you want to lose weight, because you've never been able to do it, because you're not good enough. And then you are just using the tool of the salad to actually validate your limiting belief. And so I think it's more important for people to get clear about their intention before they use any tool. And then the tool will serve them instead of them trying to control the tool. That's a really powerful reframe. Could you, since we keep talking about it, talking about the VIBE method, can you just briefly like explain what VIBE actually stands for? Yes. Uh, so VIBE is an acronym. And the V stands for visioning. And it's also the, the space for connecting with higher wisdom, higher love, higher vibrations, like we've discussed, generative And then the I stands for the inner work. And that inner work is where we dive into the thoughts, the emotional body, you know, the mind and the brain and how it works, what your limiting beliefs are, what your uh, values are. And the B stands for building building the practices or building the behavior from the first two steps. And that's one of the more unique things of why this five method is, I think, a game changer in the fitness world is because a lot of people start their physical exercise, fitness, or nutrition changes from the behavior changes without looking at the inner game and without even starting from a higher wisdom. So they skip those first two steps, they go right to the behavior change, and then they wonder why their outcomes are like Groundhog Day. And then the E is the embodiment. So your embodiment is going to be a reflection of the above-mentioned parts. Your embodiment is a reflection of your vision, your powerful, higher wisdom. Your embodiment is a reflection of your inner world, your thoughts, your feelings, your emotional body. And your embodiment is a reflection of the behaviors that you repeat over and over and over that become habit. So the vibe method is a gift that I received, you know, from my intuition that says, this is the process. And in this order, this is how we heal for the long term. This is how we create harmony. This is how we use the tools in a way that is in love, in um, an intention that is uh, truly sacred for each person. And everyone's vibe is going to be different. That's what I love about this is this is not a process or a framework that puts anyone in a box. The vibe method is fluid and is flexible and helps everyone create their own unique vibration to take them into the new embodied state of being that they desire. 
So that's the vibe method. <laughs> Thank you for asking. Oh, that's great. Thank you. I've seen you refer to it quite a bit, but I've never understood exactly what it stood for and what it represents. And after having heard your whole story, it makes so much sense. And it, it's a great, it's a great process. It's totally different from anything I've ever mm -hmm. heard of, you know, from anybody else who works kind of in the life coaching or the fitness space. It's, it's powerful. I love it. Well, I think we need to get to the point where we wrap up our time together, even though I would, I think we could talk for another hour easily. But I have a few questions that are sort of short and sweet just to, to wrap up. So how do you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage? Well, I would say in uh, the word you used, women or woman, and what comes up for me in personal power and courage, I think it's in the womb. I think it's in our core. I think it's connecting to our solar plexus or to our area of our, of our belly, our guts, because there's so much information there. I believe that there are more nerves in our, um, in our belly area and our solar plexus than there are in our brain. And so developing that power and that courage, that personal power, tap into your own energetic space in that area and communicate with it, get intimate with it and in there inside of there I believe is everyone's unique personal power and the courage of a spiritual courage that's necessary to overcome challenges mental courage that's necessary to overcome limiting beliefs emotional courage to feel our feelings and physical courage to walk the talk and behaviors and, and engage in actions and behaviors that are aligned with our true desires that's what I'd say about that. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, what advice would you give young women today that you wish you'd been given when you were in your teens and 20s? I believe that in the teens and 20s, there's a lot of shifts going on for women. A lot of um, hormonal changes and, um, you know, demands from life and starting the, the young adulthood. And so what I would say is to, um, to seek out an elder, to really seek out someone you trust that you know loves you the way you know you deserve to be loved. And I know when you're a teen or in your 20s, you might already have relationships of, of love or intimacy, but I don't believe that that is where you developed your highest expressions of your potential of love. And so seek out an elder who is able to show love to you, not sexual love. I mean, the kinds of empathetic and compassionate love that you know are possible that you have within you that you would someday love to mirror for yourself or with others. And that relationship of having an elder or a mentor in that kind of way, I think would be precious to young women. I absolutely love that because when I first was thinking about doing a podcast, one of my desires was to provide a way for young women today 
to hear from older women and to receive knowledge and wisdom that otherwise they might not. So right on. Just, I love it. I love that you brought that you forward. You too. Right on. Yes. And, and thank you for doing that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Last question. So when you reach the end of your days, how do you want to be remembered? Oh, you know what I just felt in my body is I want to be remembered by an inner smile and everyone that knows me and has come into contact with me. I want people to remember me when they feel that inner smile. I want that inner smile to be the thing that activates their power and their courage to live their lives in a way that continues to spread smiles across the planet, inner smiles and outer smiles. Oh, that's sweet. Thank you for asking. Well, that day is not going to come for a very long time, I hope. And I already, when I think of you, I have that inner smile. So your mission is already in process. Sweet. Where can people find you and how can they connect with you? People can find me on my website is CoachElaineWilliams.com. And on Facebook, it's Coach Elaine. And Instagram, it is Vibe Method. V-I-B-E Method. And you could also Google um, Coach Elaine and probably find some things come up there as well. Okay, well, I will drop all of your contact info in the show notes too so that people can refer to those and locate you and help that they reach out to work with you because what you're doing is amazing and is, I believe, what we need, not just on an individual level, but on a social, well, really a global level. So the more people who can start to set that ego aside, surrender, start listening to their inner wisdom and to find ways to heal that are not based on external things being done to them, the better our whole planet will be. So thank you, Elaine Williams, for coming on the podcast This has been an absolutely awesome conversation and I appreciate your time and your ability to articulate things that are not necessarily easy to put into words. Thank you so much. Thank you, Cynthia. It's been an absolute joy and an honor to be in your presence and feel the sweetness of your passion here with this work. So thank you. And I hope the audience finds it valuable. Oh, I have no doubt that they will. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Born to Be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass. You've been listening to the Born to Be a Badass podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and be sure to share it with your friends. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and a review. Tune in regularly for more exciting insights and wisdom on women, violence, and safety. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.